the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome. I hope everyone had a wonderful Independence Day weekend. President Trump did at Mount Rushmore. It was uh, a speech that had needed to be made for some time, and he picked the occasion of the celebration of America's founding. Yes, 1776, not 1619, uh, to deliver one of, uh, I think, arguably the best speeches of his presidency. And that's not just me saying it. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, which has not been afraid to criticize President Trump, uh, opined President Trump delivered one of the best speeches of his presidency Friday evening at Mount, at Mount Rushmore. And for evidence, consider the echo chamber headlines from the Associated Press at Mount Rushmore. President Trump uses Fourth of July celebration to stoke a culture war. Oh, oh, he's stoking the culture war. I see. Trump pushes racial division, flouts virus rules at Rushmore. Washington Post, Mount Rushmore, Trump exploits social divisions, warns of left wing cultural revolution, quote unquote, in dark speech ahead of Independence Day. It seems to me, uh, I mean, just if we're categorizing this correctly, it was uh, the left that, that brought this cultural war to America's doorstep. And unfortunately, President Trump being one of the few politicians to respond in kind. Generally speaking, although I would argue over the last four weeks, he has not been forceful enough in response. And that ended this weekend. The criticism we talked about last week, uh, Tucker Carlson argued uh, uh, in advance of this position last week. The idea that Americans, including Trump supporters, feeling neglected and undefended. Well, they're not feeling neglected and undefended after that speech, so long as President Trump follows it up with action. I am here as your president to proclaim before the country and before the world, this monument will never be desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never, ever be destroyed. Their achievements will never be forgotten. And Mount Rushmore will stand forever as an eternal tribute to our forefathers and to our freedom. One other... um statement of principle Trump offered. We stand tall, we stand proud, and we only kneel to Almighty God. No more kneeling to man. No no man is better than any other man, certainly not in the eyes of God and shouldn't be before the law. And that's precisely the opposite of what the left is arguing. So what you had, and this is too long in coming, but it came, it's a start, 
is President Trump framing the choice for the American people with a look ahead towards November and even beyond November with a look ahead to a look ahead towards the future of our country and whether or not we are going to sit idly by and let Jacobins roll over people, let the purge continue unabated, or we're going to be proud, we're going to stand, and we will not kneel before the mob. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Bob Woodson. He is the founder and president of the Woodson Center and also the founder of 1776, which is a response to the 1619 Project, to talking about uh, preserving and understanding American history so we can build upon the successes and learn from the failures. Bob, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be here, Dan. Uh, and and um, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, you wrote about uh, one of these uh, memorials in particular. I mean, it's clear that some people know what they're doing, and a lot of other people on the streets, uh, uh, the vandals, don't know what they're doing, uh, who they're doing it to, or the history behind it. And you wrote about one that had generated a, a good deal of controversy, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, Memorial in Washington, D.C., uh, why did that uh, one in particular capture your attention? Well, because uh, America, the, the left, looks at it as a secular view of America and that, that, that a person should be defined by their sins, and there's no such thing as redemption. But uh, American values and, and those, of the, those who fought for freedom, Frederick Douglass and the others, they saw the Emancipation Proclamation and the Statue of Lincoln uh, that was erected Emancipation Park as a symbol of America's redemption from slavery. And in fact, the memorial itself uh, was paid for uh, in large measure by freed slaves. Um, and uh, there was great celebration at the time that it was unveiled. President Grant and his whole cabinet, uh, there were 25,000 people, all of the fraternal organizations in the black community, uh, Howard University's uh, dean uh, spoke. Frederick Douglass was a principal. So it was a, it was a subject of great a celebration at the time of us unveiling. And so it's a very special uh, place in the hearts of, uh, uh, of Americans. And to see that thing desecrated was, uh, or attempts to take it down, it, it was really an abomination. And there's a lot of pushback in the black community and others uh, against that happening. Uh, and, and so it, and I think it's shameful that civil rights leaders and members of the Congressional Black Caucus are silent in the presence of it. In fact, Ellen Holmes Norton, the D.C. delegate, has authored legislation to remove it, which means that the mob and the, the left is causing all kinds of people who were champions of civil rights um, to retreat. And, uh, and, and, it's, it's, and, and speaking of, of, you mentioned Frederick Douglass, who was uh, there at the dedication to, um, uh, to, to note both the shortcomings as well as the, uh, the, the successes of Lincoln and the nation. Uh, a Frederick Douglass statue in Rochester, New York, the site of his famous July 4th address, damaged and removed over the weekend. Uh, there's pictures of what happened uh, in, at the, the site of his memorial or his statue 
in Maplewood Park. This is, you know, an abolitionist, a freed slave, a uh, important intellect, an important historical figure in American history. And he's taken down, too. I guess uh, he uh, was too generous with Lincoln. And so he's got to be erased from history as well. Well, I just think this, it, it, the fact that Douglas's statue, and I think Dr. King's is next. I, I, I yeah. just think that because this this should be clear to everybody that this demonstration is not about injustice. It's just not about racial inequality. It isn't about an assault on civil society. It is an assault against the foundation of this nation. They're just using race as the bludgeon to define America as a criminal organization because of the sins of its past. As I have said on numerous occasions, how many of us want to be defined by the worst that we did as a young person? America is all about redemption. Every figure in the Bible was broken, was a sinner at a certain point, and their path towards redemption is what elevated them to become heroes. Well, well, right, and and President Trump, um, to to follow up on what you were saying about uh, Reverend King— President Trump mentioned Reverend King in his speech and mentioned uh, King's characterization of the the Declaration of the Constitution being promissory notes that uh, uh, have to be fulfilled. And obviously they weren't for much of our nation's history, but it doesn't change the promise on those notes to be fulfilled. And so that's what we should be about doing, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's why the Constitution, the Constitution was a document that enabled the country to continue to renew itself, to continue to improve, uh, to continue to prosper. But, but it's in that, in, in, that improvement. And so that's what we should be celebrating. But trust me, the fact that, they, that the 1619 Project, there's not a single mention, maybe a single mention of King and Douglas. That's because anyone that embraced the principles of freedom and liberty and the founding ideals has also been ignored or attacked. The very fact that in the whole uh, 1619 Project report, they never mention the Democratic Party as being associated with racism. When they're taking down statues of anyone who's uttered a word about injustice, the Democratic Party's uh, name should be first among those taken down because the Democratic Party was the party of the Dixiecrats. They created the Klan. They created uh, racial divisions in the South. But we don't hear that discussed. When we come back with uh, Bob Woodson, I want to pick up there, talk a little bit more about the 1619 Project and some of the comments of its founder, Nicole Hannah-Jones, during the uh, civil unrest over the last several weeks. More with Bob Woodson, at Bob Woodson is where you can follow him on Twitter. Founder and president of the Woodson Center and 1776, right after this. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're uh, pleased to be uh, joined again by Bob Woodson, the founder and president of the Woodson Center and uh, the 1776, which is a in part a response to the 1619 Project's a historical characterization of America and in part charting just a completely different vision for America, which I want to get into. But before we uh, get into the competing visions for America, 
Uh, Bob, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the founder of the 1619 Project, the newly minted Pulitzer Prize winner, she, uh, during the, uh, the rioting, and I separate that from the peaceful protesting, during the rioting and the looting in American cities over the last several weeks, characterized taking of other people's property as a symbolic taking. She said that uh, violence is not normally prescribed, but these are not normal times, sort of rationalizing violence even. I wonder how you react to her characterizations of the violence and the, the looting. Well, she went on even beyond that. She said she doesn't regard damage to property as violence. Correct. She also, when asked whether or not this was someone characterized it as a 1619 riots, she said gleefully, I accept that. Mm-hmm. She said that on her, on, her, on her Twitter feed. But of course, after some criticism, she took it down, but she nevertheless said with, with very gleefully, yeah, I, I accept that. So she's, she's condoned violence in, in pursuit of this, So, but yet she can get a Pulitzer. So uh, that's and, the part that I find troubling, and no one's, no one's questioned it. Well, and in previous writings, too, we uh, find from a letter to the editor at um, a Notre Dame publication, she uh, sounded positively uh, Farrakhanian in describing white people, white devils, this and that. So it seems to me the 1619 Project, um, in addition to being a historical or necessarily, be, uh, it has to be a historical because its purpose is, as you were describing before the break, to suggest that America is uh, hopelessly racist. And the only thing you can do as a white person is spend your life apologizing and uh and paying, and paying her and, and paying her no, and, and, and other people her. to teach you how to Just not to be a racist. Yeah, right. Make, make her rich. Describe the impact of the consequences of following the 1619 Project vision for America, the Black Lives Matter vision for America versus your organization, 1776. I think those two visions need to be put side to side so people really understand it. Yeah, 1619, a, a, a brief summary, says that America's is racist in its DNA and that capitalism is racist and the nuclear family is Eurocentric and therefore racist and capitalism is evil. That's their premise. And that all white people benefit from the privileges of the past and therefore they are victimizers and all blacks are victims. That's their vision. They offer no remedies about what do we do to improve except that whites must give reparations to blacks. By contrast, we at 1776 believe that our birthday is 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And therefore, rather than engage in debate, what we've done is since they are using the black issue as the bludgeon, we have organized a cadre of black scholars and activists who come together to extol the virtues of our past and our present, going back in history and describing the correct history that 1619 contends that black American conditions of alouette like birth and violence are directly related to that historic past. We refute that by offering evidence that the blacks achieved in the face of oppression, they had a highest marriage rate during the Depression, they had stable families for 100 years after slavery, that we were making economic progress, building schools, building hotels. So we are providing aspirational and inspirational content to refute what they're saying, but also to offer a vision for our future uh, that is uplifting and, and inspirational because black children in particular are being targeted by 
1619 with a mantra to me that is worse than slavery, because slavery was external. But what they are saying to black America, that if whatever problems that you have, you are you're not responsible for. So you have no agency. Nothing, Dan, is more lethal than providing people with a good excuse for their failings, to say to them, you, it, it, it's insulting, it's white supremacist to assume that somehow the fate of black America's future is in the hands of white people. And, so, and until white yeah. people change, black people can't expect to change. That is, that is a poisonous message. Yeah, and it, it, but it, I tell you what, though, they've done a nice pincer movement. On the one hand, they've uh, the, the left, the cultural Marxists were talking about people like those involved with the 1619 Project, uh, the New York Times editorial board, you know, the, the repositories of the cultural Marxists. They've, the, the pincer movement is um, make uh, black Americans believe they're dependent on the state and make white Americans believe that they have a burden to increase the state to support black Americans. And so, you, exactly. you know, you got you got but you got a you got a, 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 a two pronged problem intellectually, don't you? You, you really do. Um, and, and so that's why it is important. We're not going to win the struggle by just writing white papers and complaining about it. So that's why what we're doing in 1719, we are mobilizing uh, 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 K through 12 curriculum with producing uh, videos. We, uh, we are going to be having arming our 2,500 low-income grassroots leaders that have after-school programs in these inner cities. We're arming them so that they can become civic educators about the virtues of our founders. We're talking about maybe trying to produce some movies of, of uh, people in the past who were born slaves who died millionaires. Uh, so we're going to be demonstrating that it is the values of our founding principles that were the best defense against oppression. And, and the free enterprise system was the best instrument that ex-slaves used in order to prosper in the presence of oppression. It's, it's, a, it's, so, a, it's a big pull, but I mean, you're, you're essentially saying, look, we, we have to teach people the American history, including the history of black Americans, that they don't know that they're otherwise not going to be taught. We have to fill that void. That's the that's the uh, the problem you're looking to solve. Yes, when I when I spoke at a black college some years ago, Talladega State, to about a thousand students, when I began to share with them the histories of blacks in business, how we built whole towns, how in 1920s in the Greenwood section of Tulsa, six men owned their own private airplanes, just 60 years after slavery. And, and that's why it was burned down, because it had a better economic uh, uh, center than did white Tulsa. And so when I shared this with students, several of them came up to me in tears. He said, Mr. Woodson, why don't our leaders ever tell us these things? And so what we're trying to do is move around the gatekeepers in the black community and, and move directly and get this information in the hands of black America. I really believe, Dan that low-income black Americans, uh, because they are going to be the saviors of this nation. Because mm. once that sleeping giant wakes up and realizes how the left is exploiting and using them, and they rebel, that will undermine the moral authority that the left has, because they're, they're, the moral authority right now is based on the assumption, on the proposition that they are representing disaffected 
uh, minorities. It's an excellent point, Bob. Uh, when we come back, I want to go back to the example of Black Wall Street and Tulsa. More with Bob Woodson when we Salem Radio Network. Coming up, we'll be speaking with C. Bradley Thompson, who is a research professor at Clemson University and author of America's Revolutionary Mind. But uh, right now we return to Bob Woodson, founder of the Woodson Center. And uh, Bob, I want to go back to uh, the Black Wall Street and Tulsa example that you uh, that you raised. Um, I put this to Bob Johnson, the uh, the billionaire founder of BET, when we spoke last week. There's interesting. He didn't have m- really much of a response, which is, you know, there was a lot of uh, discussion about the uh, the the, the uh, 99 year anniversary of the massacre in Tulsa before Trump's rally in Tulsa the other week. But there was almost no discussion of, wait a second, how was there a black Wall Street in Tulsa in 1921? Right. We don't celebrate the fact that it was so envied and despised by whites because of its success. But also what it isn't being told is that it, most of it has been re, was rebuilt within 13 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just it's the fo- I mean, it's just uh, the focus on on, as you just say, the destruction. Right. Just because the destruction. It's, it's a destruction that plays into the hands of the left. Right. Because it's a de- success, it's a dependence. It does not fit their narrative. Right. It, 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 if uh, if people are independent, well, then they're not reliant on those who want to grow government and they need people dependent on government in order to grow it. I mean, it's it's not you know, it's not that complicated a proposition, which is why I struggle to understand why more people don't see it. I mean, it, it, it has all the uh, complication of a three card Monty game. It's not that complicated. No, it isn't. But today I did a debate with uh, Hawk Newman, one of the spokespersons for Black Lives Matter. We went at it for an hour, <laughs> and it will be released today. But I asked him this question. I said, well, if racism is the principal barrier to our progress, then why are failing in institutions in the last 60 years in institutions run by their own people? All of these cities are black run by liberal Democrats. Right. And he confessed, he said, because uh, white people are able to exercise control. I, I said, are you, are you acknowledging that, black, that, that it makes no, it's no consequence to have blacks elected to office because either they're complicit in, in, in the inequities that are being produced or they're powerless to do anything about it if they know about it? So I just boxed him in a corner. Well, right. I mean, it'd be right. Go to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and tell her that some white person or white people are pulling her strings. You know, you will get a fierce response, as you can imagine. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say they're being manipulated. They they don't have their own agency, even the people in positions of great authority like mayor of Chicago. Uh, uh, So they're being manipulated. But um, and then. but it's but it but we want more uh, blacks in office and high office and positions of authority. Well, if you're saying they're just going to be manipulated by whites, then what's the point? 
and, and also voter suppression. Why would the, the greatest voter suppression in urban centers is apathy. In most of your urban centers, like D.C., Detroit, uh, D.C., Newark, Trenton, during municipal elections, the voter turnout is under 6%. 6%! No one to be forced. And so why is voter suppression the blacks an uh, issue anywhere? Because, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the uh, idea that you should uh, require an ID... That somehow is uh, is discriminatory against. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, to me, that's another example. You you tell me, though. But but my reaction to it, it's another infantilization of black Americans. They everybody else could uh, have uh, an ID and vote there. That's not a problem. But what you're doing by requiring an ID, well, that's unfair to black Americans. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's so self-defeating and self-demeaning. Sometimes people don't even know they're in that they're discouraging themselves to, to say that. Uh, but, but this is what, these contradictions are something that we more. I also able to get uh, Clark Newman to, I asked him, well, how is it that if racism were the principal barrier, why did we build hotels, railroads, and whole towns at a time when racism, we were suffering de jure racism? And he said, well, it's because of the strength within. I said, oh, so you acknowledge <laughs> during those times that we did have agency of strength. And so I'm, so then I just left it there. Yeah. Yeah. But I got him to He is Bob Woodson. He's the founder and president of the Woodson Center. At Bob Woodson is how you follow him uh, on Twitter and uh, 1776unites.com is the website to get involved with uh, his counter to 1619. Bob, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Continuing our conversation about uh, America as she turns 244. Uh, We started with Bob Woodson earlier in the hour. I uh, take note of a Speech that uh, Silent Cal gave President Calvin Coolidge on the occasion of the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1926, in which he um, had a great frame for progress versus regress, essentially. If all men are created equal, that's final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the government, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond those propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of people. Yeah. The idea that the latest point in time is always the most advanced point in time, that fallacy, sort of what Coolidge is speaking to when you talk about immutable truths that are memorialized in our founding documents. If um, only that was the received wisdom of the day, but it certainly is not. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by C. Bradley Thompson, who's the BB&T research professor at Clemson University, ED of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, and author of America's Revolutionary Mind, 
A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. Professor Thompson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Great to be with you and your audience today. And uh, great to get your perspective as a uh, Canadian. Uh, a good piece that uh, you penned for, uh, at least that I saw at RealClearPolitics.com, about uh, you know your aspirations growing up in Canada to uh, take advantage of the uniqueness of America. That's right. When I was about seven or eight years old, living um, in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada, I read a children's book called The How and Why Wonder Book of the American Revolution. And from the moment I finished that book, I knew that I was an American born in the wrong country. And I also, from that point forward, <clears throat> had this, this great aspiration to one day become an American, to move to the United States um, and live here and, and raise a family here. And so when I was 19, at the first opportunity, um, I moved to the United States, and that was in January of 1979. And I have been here since, and um, I'm pleased to be able to report uh, to you and your audience that one week from today, I will take my exam for U.S. citizenship uh, and will be a citizen um, formally by the end of the month, which will be uh, the culmination of a lifelong dream. Wow, that's great. Congratulations. I, I think you'll do pretty well based on your scholarship, as I understand. I think you've got a handle on this little experiment called America. Um, and one of the things that you write about, which is really a, a pressing discussion, equality and inequality, how to reconcile those the seeming paradox of a, a nation where all men are created equal, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, equality of outcomes, which is really a lesson not learned by uh, many, many people, particularly those uh, in places of amplification like the media and, and academia. That's exactly right. This nation was founded on certain self-evident truths, the first of which is that all men are created equal. But of course, throughout our history, that has been a contested claim. And it's also problematic just philosophically. So when we look out into the world, when I stand in front of a classroom, there's a sense in which you could say, I don't see inequality at all. What I see is difference. I see men and women, black and white, tall, short, <clears throat> fast, slow, strong, weak. And then as I tell my students, then I grade their papers. And <laughs> I see that are some that are, there are some who are pretty smart and, and some who need to do some work. So there's a sense at which, you know, when we first look out at the world, we don't see equality. So the question is, in what sense, then, is it that all men are created equal? And what I think what the Founding Fathers meant is that all human beings are endowed with certain common attributes, the most important of which are reason and free will. Those two attributes are what distinguish human beings from all other beings from dogs and horses. And that's the sense. So it's a metaphysical fact that all men and women are created equal in that they have these attributes. But more fundamentally, I think there's a moral component to the meaning of, of equality. The moral component says that all individuals are equal in their freedom and in their rights. We must have freedom in order to live prosperous and, and flourishing lives. And so what that does not mean, however, is that we are or should be made equal by the government, right? It doesn't mean that all men and women should have the same economic resources, the same material goods. 
Equality does not mean sameness. Well, and, and just on that issue, we seem to have uh, had a clean break in terms of passing on that received wisdom from generation to perhaps the last couple. And I point to this Gallup poll. Uh, 88% of Republicans said they're very or extremely proud to be an American. 42% of Democrats. College graduates, people of color, and young people were the least proud to be an American, according to the Gallup survey. 20%. College graduates, people of color, and young people, least proud to be American, only one in five. That seems to me problematic if you have uh, uh, succeeding generations of Americans who don't believe in the, the promise of America, the underpinnings of the country. It's problematic to be sure, but it's entirely explainable. It's explainable because America's young people, from the time they enter, enter kindergarten until the time they graduate from high school and then university, are taught to hate America. So take, for instance, this 1619 project of the New York Times, which says that America was founded not in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, but rather was founded in 1619 when slavery was brought to the United States. And what this means is that um, if America were founded in 1619 on the basis of slavery, that means then that America is by definition an evil country. It's immoral and therefore evil. And this doctrine, it's really been taught in, in America's schools now for many generations, but with the 1619 Project, which is now being introduced into America's school system across the board, um, it's only going to intensify uh, the degree to which our young people really have come to, uh, to hate the United States of America. Yeah, you know what? I, 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 let me hold it there, and I want to pick up on that fifth column action that you're describing in K-12 through education. Uh, more with uh, Bradley Thompson. He's research professor at Clemson University, author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution, and the Declaration that Defined It. We'll be right back. you'll know this is the Dan Prof show welcome back we're talking to professor C Bradley Thompson he's the BB&T research professor at Clemson University executive director of the Clemson Institute for the study of capitalism and author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined in. Before the break, we are talking about uh, the 1619 Project, which we were talking about with Bob Woodson earlier in the hour as well, and its effort to insinuate itself. It's not effort. It's happening. It's insinuation of the 1619 Project, a historical account of America into K-12 through classrooms. And, and I characterize this as a fifth-column action by neo-Marxists in this country. I don't know if you think that's fair or if you think that's, um, that... Uh, overstates the case. I think that's entirely fair because it's it's a movement that's not just about defining when America was founded and the role of slavery in it, but if you actually read the entirety of uh, the New York Times magazine story on the 1619 project, you will know that the second further claim of the 1619 project is that all of the good institutions in America, 
and more particularly, all of the all of the prosperity that has resulted from capitalism is tainted by slavery and therefore evil. So it's really a story not just about the founding, it's a story about America in general. And if you teach an entire generation of young people to hate their country, they will. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, a nation that hates itself cannot stand. And, and I, I, I'm glad you brought up Lincoln, because I wanted to get your reaction to something that uh, Harry Jaffa observed, the great historian, uh, now since past, but uh, who, who, in my opinion, wrote the definitive biography on Lincoln, New Birth of Freedom. He, um, he, he puts this in context, too. You have to understand history's progression. He, uh, he wrote, let us contemplate two uh, epochal, uh, epochal events in the long human history. He starts with one. One is the enunciation of the unity of God at Mount Sinai. The same God was said to have made man among living beings in his image. Implicit in the unity of God was the corresponding unity of the human race, but it was only after more than 3,000 years that the declaration of this unity was made in Philadelphia. And he goes on to, you know, say, essentially suggest one not necessarily believe in divine intervention to think that uh, it has been the peculiar mission of the American people to testify to the unity on earth of God and of man. I mean, 3,000 years before that belief system was formalized into the founding principles of a nation. Yes. For 3,000 years, the defining political principle of virtually every society everywhere through all time was the doctrine of inequality. All societies prior to the United, the founding of the United States of America were hierarchical societies where there were rulers and the ruled. But the American teaching says this, that no man is by nature the master of another, and no man is by nature the slave of another. All men have the right and the authority and ability to be self-owning and self-governing. He is C. Bradley Thompson, the BB&T Research Professor at Clemson University, Executive Director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution, and the Declaration that Defined It. Professor Thompson, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And just because you don't wear a funny suit like uh, Kim Jong-un or you don't have... uh, phony baloney military uniforms with all kinds of fake designations and epaulets like some South American communist junta doesn't mean that you're not a totalitarian. You don't wear like a bowling shirt like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela just because you don't do that doesn't mean you're not a totalitarian. So President Xi and the Chicoms button down businessman image belies their totalitarianism. Andrew Sullivan over the weekend writing by the... Uh, Definition of the United States Holocaust Museum of a genocidal state or of a genocide, I should say, but in this context, a genocidal state. By their definition, the five features of a genocide and a genocidal state. Sullivan, there is no doubt at this point that communist China is a genocidal state. Story out last week, U.S. seizes $800,000 shipment of Xinjiang products made with human hair 
perhaps taken from Uyghur concentration camps. How gruesome is that? In addition to all the other things we know are gruesome. Last week, under the new quote-unquote security law, the CHICOMs began arresting pro-democracy Hong Kongans. Importantly, understand that the new security law is not limited to Hong Kongans. It's international in scope, just as are China's interests, as Gordon Chang explained over the weekend uh, in a conversation with Charles Payne on Fox Business. We don't know the scope of this national security law, but on paper, it gives China the ability to imprison anybody that it wants. You don't even have to go to Hong Kong to be at risk because Hong Kong and China have extradition treaties with other countries. And Article 38 of this law says that any comment, any statement on foreign soil by a foreigner is a violation of the national security law. Right now, Secretary of State Pompeo sat down with Brett Baer last week and uh, talked about what the Trump administration is doing with respect to gruesome products coming out of China that are the product of slave labor or even worse. Nobody wants to buy products, uh, cheap products that were made with slave labor uh, in Western China. They, they want uh, clarity about the, the tracing of the product that they have. And so we've asked every business to evaluate their supply chain and make sure that nothing like that ever gets in. And on Hong Kong? I wish previous administration had taken China seriously. It's truly, this isn't partisan. Uh, we've done really good work, important work, trying to protect the freedoms of the people of Hong Kong. General Secretary Xi has chosen to go a different direction, and we're responding in a way that will put pressure on Beijing and try to maintain whatever we can of the remaining freedoms in Hong Kong. I will tell you, the notion that there remains one country and two systems is fundamentally at odds with the facts on the ground today. And uh, on the administration's general attitude toward China at present. We want the Chinese people to be successful. The Chinese Communist Party today has made a decision. It wants to be an imperialist power. It wants to be authoritarian in nature. And it wants to compete across the world in ways that are inconsistent with the good things happening for the American people and, frankly, people of democracies all across the world. And you think President Biden's policies would be aimed squarely at that, at the benefactors, at his son's benefactors? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, Thanks for being with us. Man, are you guys Debbie Downers on a Monday? Yes, we are. Absolutely. No, we're Debbie realists. I know that's not alliterative, but uh, Pompeo on China, Gordon Chang on China, the new security law, as well as Pompeo talking about, hey, companies, check your supply lines because you're going to be held responsible if you're trafficking in products that were produced by slaves in China, basically. As partisan and poisonous as the atmosphere is today and how the president's critics and the haters say, well, whatever Trump's for, I'm against. I think on China, they have got to have more clarity. The reality is, is this administration has identified a serious challenge, not just to America, but to the free world. They've adopted really exactly all the right policies to deal with it. The worst possible thing I could imagine doing is saying, well, we're going to do the opposite of Trump. That would be I think a disaster. And China is testing the world. And they are testing the water to see how much they can push this. It's exactly the wrong time for people not to vigorously push back. Is uh, the characterization by Andrew Sullivan of China as a genocidal state, is that unfair or right on the mark? Well, look, I mean, there are three things that we know unequivocally that are true. One is they put over a million people in concentration camps. 
and they're trying to hide that fact from the world. The second one is, is they are using the Uyghurs for slave labor in factories throughout the country. And the third one is, is they do have a program of forced sterilization, essentially to eliminate this population. Those are three very damning points. I'm not a lawyer, so, and I don't know international law, so I'm not sure the actual, how you want to qualify genocide, but these are things which are unconscionable by any questionable standard of the free world. You know what's amazing is we have protests, not just in the United States, but around the world today. We tear down Christopher Columbus's statue. We tear down King Leopold's statue. We're so overwrought about the evils of imperialism in the world today. Yet today we have the worst of imperialist tendencies of the worst empires that ever existed. And I don't see anybody going to the streets complaining about what Beijing is doing. On uh, Russia, Mike Pompeo had this to say about the whole controversy surrounding Russian targeting of U.S. troops, bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and how intelligence rises to the level of the president. Listen to Pompeo get your reaction. Uh, every morning I wake up and I read the intelligence materials. And when I read them, uh, there are people all across the world who are threatened, including my officers at embassies all across the world. Uh, we don't always make sure that gets to the president. We do the right thing. We make sure the ambassador on the ground knows, that the commander on the ground knows, that our allies who may be threatened as well know. Uh, it is the tactical and operational response to keep our soldiers safe and secure that is most important. Uh, when the intelligence community feels like something rises to the level it needs to get to the president, I am very confident they will consistently present it to them. I know that when I was the CIA director, I did that. I, I mean, it just sort of strains the bounds of credulity, doesn't it, that uh, Mike Pompeo and President Trump would be uh, sort of indifferent to uh, Russian bounties on American troops or or just inconsistent with their concern for U.S. troops. Regardless, you assume that the Russians are interested in hurting, killing U.S. troops, hurting U.S. interests. So I, I'm having a little bit of difficulty following the point of the uh, New York Times jihad on this issue. First of all, the way Pompeo described intelligence, the intelligence you get, what you can do with it, that's exactly consistent. I had 25 years in the military. I was proved all kinds of intelligence briefing. All of that sounds exactly right to me. The second thing I would say is, look, this president has an outstanding track record of supporting American forces. And when somebody goes after them, unleashing American forces to go after them back. The third, I think the most important is, let's look at the history of the critique of intelligence in this country. Bush acted on confirmed intelligence, which was wrong, but confirmed intelligence got widely castigated for that. He got pilloried. Obama had decisive intelligence on what was going on in Libya and Benghazi after the fall of Gaddafi, that the country was becoming incredibly more dangerous, that our troops, that our, our personnel on the ground were at risk, and he did nothing. He was never held accountable for that. Trump acts on decisive intelligence going after Soleimani, who is out trying to kill Americans. He got pilloried for that. And he doesn't act on unequivocal intelligence, and he gets pilloried for that. So I'm really starting to see the pattern here, which is not that it's the quality of the intelligence matters, but it's the political narrative being used to critique the intelligence that matters. Well, in addition to that, this is all in service. I know you want to get into the electoral politics, but I mean, it's hard to extract the hydrogen from the water here. This is all in service of Joe Biden, who was part of the team that ridiculed Mitt Romney in 2012 when he suggested that Russia was the greatest foe facing America. Now, you could argue Russia versus China even back then, but it certainly wasn't a laughable statement, but that's the way it was treated by the Obama-Biden team. Again, I'm not political, but I do think at this point we've rolled out the Russian narrative so many times now. It's proven 
demonstrably false, including major independent investigations of this administration. No one has ever produced any evidence to show that the United States has ever given a Russian a pass on everything. And if you look at the intelligence, which these guys are so, you know, like, we have to look at the intelligence. What does the intelligence tell you? The Russians are out to get the United States. They've been out to get us for four years. They hate our policies. They're tough on them, and they're pushing back. You know, you just have to kind of question what's really going on here. I think the reality is, is you know, every, we've seen this story over and over again. The people that trust the president, they trust the president. They're not going to change his mind. The people that hate the president, they believe this narrative, not because it's true, because there's demonstrably no evidence that it's actually true. They just hate the president. So I, I think this story, like all the ones we've had in the past, including Ukraine and the Mueller report and the original allegations of collusion, same thing's going to happen. There's going to be nothing there, but the people that hate him are going to believe it, and the people that don't hate him will trust him. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for being my Monday. Shake it up. Shake it up. The podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Coming up, we'll talk to Kurt Ellis, founder of the American Jobs Alliance, about the 7 million plus jobs created uh, in the last two months to try to climb towards recovery whether or not uh, he agrees with uh, Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia that uh, once America's economy is completely open and that opening is sustained, we'll see a V-shaped recovery. But now we move from our discussion of uh, enemies of the state. Uh, We move to other enemies of the state, uh, including a British socialite. Her name is Ghislaine Maxwell. And of course, you know her from being arrested on Friday. But more importantly, part of this long running alleged don't know that there's much doubt about it. International child sex trafficking ring that was headed up by Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, British socialite who had both a UK and French passport and was Epstein's right hand person. Uh, She's arrested on Friday in New Hampshire. She bought some million dollar pad in New Hampshire. And uh, as was reported by The Sun, she had up to 20 million bucks in the bank. And she was spending her time cooking, boxing, reading books by Boris Johnson at her 160-acre estate in New Hampshire. Now she's in the lockup and allegedly on suicide watch. Uh Uh-oh. Let's try to maybe go with a different shift over at the MCC and NYC uh, as opposed to those uh, security guards who had Epstein duty. Uh, This is really a remarkable case. And since we've been talking about the justice system when it comes to violent crime, sexual abuse is a violent crime, sexual trafficking is a violent crime, and uh, the age-old problem of people with resources and connections enjoying a different system of justice. And that certainly seems to be the case with respect to Jeffrey Epstein. And, And it's remarkable what he got away with, too. He sort of presented almost as like this Svengali who was able to persuade people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. He gets a job teaching physics at a prestigious secondary school in New York, even though he didn't have a college degree, the Dalton School. He uh, gets a job at Bear Stearns, starts dating the daughter of Ace Greenberg, was the CEO of Bear Stearns at the time. They discover doing a background check, he was retained to come up with 
a marketing plan for some quantitative application that uh, Bear Stearns was developing. The guy who hired him gets a call from HR saying his resume doesn't check out, that he doesn't have a college degree. He lied on his employment application. So he whistles Epstein in, and rather than fire him, he allows Epstein to sort of worm his way out of it because he was doing such good work. Epstein later washes out of Bear Stearns uh, after several years, but you know, somehow curiously amasses this fortune in the hundreds of millions of dollars, all the while bringing celebrities and political uh, potentates, including Bill Clinton, around all these people in his orbit. And then 10 years after the first allegations, there are new allegations. The uh, Palm Beach Police Department, the local police department actually does pretty dogged work. And they think they've got Epstein dead to rights in 2006. They put together 35 to 40 girls willing to testify. And initially, the local prosecutor is very much interested in the case, thinks it's a slam dunk. We'll put this guy away for the rest of his life. And then as you get closer and closer, Epstein recognizes the walls are closing in, hires the dream team of lawyers and uh, the prosecutor, the local prosecutor, local district attorney sort of starts to walk it back. The police chief to the credit here, the local police chief refers the case to the FBI, unusual, sort of going in the head over the head of his district attorney. And then this is where Alex Acosta, Trump's fleeting labor secretary, comes in. He was U.S. attorney in uh, Miami at the time. He picks up the case. It languishes, languishes, languishes. Ultimately, Epstein is charged. They agree to a plea deal where he's charged with one count of solicitation, agrees to spend 18 months in prison, which he really didn't spend in prison, violating his parole all the time. This is really well documented in the documentary. Um, but nobody cares because he's a celebrity and he's they basically have the orders at DOC to uh, let him do what he wants. So he does for the 13 months he's, quote unquote, in prison. Then he's back out and he's back doing the same thing in violation of his parole. And, and Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, it's important to note the charges against her. Four counts of sex trafficking and two counts of perjury. The sex offenses committed between 1994 and 1997. I mentioned that the twin girls who seem to be sort of the beginning of where this gets on law enforcement's radar in 1996. The perjury charges for 2016. So why is she finally picked off now? Why would why does she stay in the country and why arrest her now? It's taken so long. There's a lot of questions about this in a case that just has not been handled well. And what uh, if she was not expecting this prosecution, just as Jeffrey Epstein wasn't expecting to be arrested when he was last year, then uh, what does she have to give? Does she have perhaps the same information that uh, Jeffrey Epstein had on some of those who were Jeffrey Epstein travelers on the quote unquote Lolita Express to quote unquote pedophile island? I mean, could this get any more despicable? And there's all kinds of rumors about whether Epstein was an FBI informant, whether Ghislaine Maxwell was assisting the feds. This is why they got this unusual non-prosecution agreement that included both Epstein and Maxwell and any unknown or any known or unknown co-conspirators as part of his deal in 2008 with Alex Acosta in the universe in the uh, U.S. attorney's office. So why was she here when she could have fled to countries where it'd be much it would be difficult to extradite her. Why was she arrested now? What does she know? Has she ever been on both sides of this issue, meaning being an, an asset of law enforcement or even the intelligence community, as well as uh, a co-conspirator in a sexual trafficking ring? And um, what does she have to say? What can she trade up for a plea deal? Who will she serve up? I know Randy Andy, Prince Andrew, uh, he's a bit jumpy, as well he should be after his... Uh, 
after the pictures that have come out of him with underage girls and then his catastrophic BBC interview where he tried to do damage control, he shelved a trip to uh, a golfing holiday to Spain because he's nervous about going abroad during this investigation now that it is uh, seems to be re-ramping up with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's arrest and the uh, Justice Department's request that he want the, to request to question him as a witness. Uh, Miami Herald, which has been on the issue, opined on this, that, uh, you know, this is the time where all of this has to finally come out. There has to finally be a reckoning here. Uh, and one would agree and take down whoever deserves to be taken down, wherever the evidence goes, whatever those girls have to say, and then those accused have to say in response. But I encourage you to watch that four-part documentary, Filthy Rich, on this Epstein matter because it's um, it really fills in the blanks in case you haven't been following it with uh, great detail or have been in and out on it like I have. And uh, it uh, gives you a lot of pause for concern about the justice system, particularly when you have the Palm Beach police chief say at one point in the uh, documentary that it was the first time in his 30-year career where he felt like he could not protect the victims. Uh, a FBI agent seemed to indicate similarly, uh, and, and she is referenced by name in the piece. So once again, as we talked about with different standards of justice and as particularly as it pertains to the FBI, the FBI has a lot to answer for, just as they do with the Russian collusion matter. They have a lot to answer for here in terms of how this proceeded, because don't forget Alex Acosta and that uh, perceived sweetheart deal that he negotiated with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, that has to get approved by justice, assistant attorney general, ultimately the attorney general. And so there are some questions that need to be answered, not just by Ghislaine Maxwell and the, the nature of that child sex trafficking ring. Those are important, obviously, but also the handling of this case at the local level, but particularly, particularly the federal level from beginning to present. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Tammy Duckworth, she's the junior senator from Illinois, don't you know? She's also auditioning this weekend, was she, to be Biden's running mate. And uh, she was on with Dana Bash on CNN. This is what she had to say about uh, the president's speech. She's asked about uh, taking down monuments to George Washington, for example, and she wouldn't make a commitment on that issue. But she did uh, have a commentary about the president's speech at Mount Rushmore. Well, let me just say that we should start off by having a national dialogue on it um, at some point. But right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and our one of our ally, one of our um, uh, countries that are opposed to us, Russia, has put a bounty on American troops' heads. What really struck me about the speech that the president gave at Mount Rushmore was that he spent more time uh, worried about uh, honoring dead Confederates 
than he did talking about the lives of our America, the 130,000 Americans who lost their lives to COVID-19, or um, by warning Russia off of the bounty they're putting on Americans' heads. I mean, his, his priorities are all wrong here. He should be talking about what we're going to do to overcome this pandemic. What are we going to do to push Russia back? And instead, so, he had no time for that. He spent all his time talking about dead traitors. Mm-hmm. Dead traitors. Um, he spent most of his time when he talked about anybody individually providing vignettes on the history and accomplishments of the four men memorialized on the mountain, didn't he? Didn't he offer commentary on Jefferson and Washington, Lincoln and Roosevelt? So which one of those four or are all of them traitors, Senator Duckworth? For more on this, the president's priorities, we're pleased to be joined by Curtis Ellis, Founder American Jobs Alliance, served as senior policy advisor on the Trump 2016 campaign and the presidential transition team, and as a special advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Labor in the Trump administration. Curtis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The president's speech at Mount Rushmore, I mean, it's not wasn't particularly policy laden and idiosyncratic in the way that Tammy Duckworth wanted it to be, but it wasn't really the occasion for that either. Your impression of sort of the broad strokes that he laid out in terms of um, understanding of the founding of this country and uh, the presentation of the choices before us and where we can take it. It was a tremendous speech. It was one of his best. We need more voices like this being heard right now. We need the people standing up for America. President Trump was standing up for Western civilization, something Tammy Duckworth is incapable of doing of defending what this country is about, the values that it was founded on, the people that are on that mountain, the great men whose faces are on that mountain, stood for, believed in the principles that made this country and that made this country great. All men are created equal. Those are the words written by Thomas Jefferson. Yes, he didn't live up to them, but I challenge anyone to be perfect. (laughs) And those who are not perfect shouldn't be throwing stones if you live in a glass house. You know, these people who worship Mao Zedong and Vladimir Lenin shouldn't be talking about freedom and equality. So Tammy Duckworth finds it, can't find it in herself to defend what America is, the values of America, what America is about, what it's founded on. She really shouldn't be serving in the U.S. Senate because she took an oath to defend the Constitution and she was incapable of defending it and defending America in that little brief interview with Dana Bash. By the way, Tammy, you're wrong. We're not in the middle of a pandemic. We're on the way out of it. We're reaching herd immunity. Uh, We're seeing the death counts drop. Even Andrew Cuomo, who craves publicity and wants his daily press briefing, say, we are on the other side of the mountain. We've climbed the mountain. We're coming down. We're on our way out of this thing. So we're not in the middle of anything. We're on the way out of it. What we're in the middle of is mass confusion and mass hysteria brought about by people, by communist insurgents who are exploiting the death, the murder of one man by a police officer to now indict an entire nation and our entire history. And if you can't say that, Tammy Duckworth, you are useless. You need to, we are in the midst, what we're in the middle of is a deliberate effort to smear and destroy the greatest country on earth. Smear it as irredeemably racist that must be burned to the ground and rebuilt from year zero. That's what we're in the middle of. And we're also and unfortunately too 
Yeah. yeah. We're, we're also- too many people on Wall Street and then the corporate suites can't even say that. They're busy paying tribute and, and bounty, uh, and, uh, you know, making tribute to these to these revolutionaries. When we come back with American Jobs Alliance founder Kurt Ellis, I want to go back to uh, President Trump calling out uh, fascism by name and uh, those who are perpetuating the leftist purge, uh, including in C-suites in America. More with Kurt Ellis. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Coming up, it'll be another edition of Sports and Politics featuring uh, Colin Kaepernick and the NBA, so you want to stay tuned for that. Right now, we're back with Kurt Ellis. He is the founder of the American Jobs Alliance. And uh, I returned to uh, part of Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore this weekend, specifically his mentioning C-suiters by name. And I'm glad he did uh, because uh, I, I, okay, so let's go there. Let's uh, let's uh, get your take on this. Uh, Michael Lind, a professor at University of Texas, uh, um, great intellect, uh, his new book, The New mm-hmm. Class War is Must Reading. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, he um he said, you know, it's a it's a cost benefit calculation that these uh, C-suite champagne socialists are making. They can either um, bear real expense to, for example, onshore their supply chains from Southeast Asia, or they can just uh, figure out what the payoff is to various constituents in urban centers, the various uh, mobsters and uh, amateur extortionists. And so they choose to do the latter because it's cheaper. And what you have actually in urban centers is two sorts of protests going on. One is the the traditional uh, protest by black urban dwellers about uh, police treatment. And another is a protest being driven by the uh, sons and daughters of 60s radicals who uh, are underemployed their uh, medieval poetry a BA from Vassar only allows them to be a barista and it's a problem. And so, and, and he makes this, he makes this important point. If you listen, if you uh, uh, take stock of their demands, their demands are mostly about redistributing uh, the wealth from some white people to other white people, nonprofits, community organizations, this and that. And, you know, there'll be some spill off for uh, minorities who are in those cottage industries too. But it's it really has nothing to do with uh, uh, restoring urban centers. It has nothing to do with peace and particularly violent neighborhoods. It has it, it has to do with the fact that one in three uh, college degreed are in professions that don't require a college degree. They're underemployed. They're not making the money to survive, particularly carrying the debt load from college that they have. And so this is where the sort of dogmatic uh, revolutionaries, quote, even though they don't really know anything, but they're dogmatic about what they don't know. This is this is where they're this is where they're coming from, and so you have to understand the sort of the both dynamics to really appreciate what's happening. Well, exactly right. Yes, uh, and I've written about this as well. The if these companies that are, that are paying tribute to, uh, to these 
to the, to these revolutionaries. And, and make no mistake, Black Lives Matter, the organization, these are Maoist revolutionaries. They want to destroy America. They want to get rid of the nuclear family. I mean, they've got they, they write it right on their website. Let's believe what they tell us, okay? How about we try try doing that? Believe them when they say they want to uh, replace America with some type of uh, you know communist model village uh, that's never really existed. But if these companies really cared about the people they claim to care about, black lives, they would bring their supply chains back They were, uh, from China, which is a slave state in itself and a racist slave state at that. Uh, these, uh, they took the jobs, uh, these companies, whether it's GM, Mary Barra, whether it's uh, Bank of America and the Wall Street financiers who pushed every industrial company to take the jobs that black Americans once had rip them out of this country and move them to China, move them to East Asia, move them to Mexico, move them to cheap, low-wage countries where if you ask for higher wages, you are shot. Uh, so they, they don't believe in freedom. They don't believe in equality. And they don't believe in black lives because if they believe in black lives, they bring those jobs back to America and rebuild America uh, to the place it was where we have shared prosperity and broad-based prosperity. But they don't do that. And you're right. The people who are going to benefit from all of these donations are the diversity trainers and the, the nonprofits and the, 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 the jaw, the jaw boners. So here's the thing. So I know the May and June job numbers have been uh, surprisingly good, and that's great. Uh, Seven million jobs plus in the last two months. And uh, I saw Gene Scalia over the weekend on Fox News Sunday saying the economy has lost 15 million fewer jobs than projected. Another projection that was off. And he predicted a uh, <laughs> uh, predicted a V-shaped recovery when the economy is allowed to reopen nationally uh, in every state. But 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 um, we also haven't you know fully felt the effects of this, particularly if you continue to have states sort of opening and reopening, stopping and starting. And And are you at all worried that. You know, once the uh, liquidity provided by Congress to the Fed, even with another round of stimulus checks, if that does come to pass, you worry at all that we may uh, be on the other side with respect to the spread of the virus, but we aren't yet on the other side in terms of a real accounting of the economic damage we inflicted upon ourselves. No, that's absolutely right. We're not on the other side of the economic damage. I'm I'm very concerned about that and some of the knock-on effects of our children who have not received the education. If these schools don't reopen in September, we are going to inflict lasting damage on them. Uh, and we will not know the full extent of this damage for decades, really. So we need to uh, – Congress is looking at uh, more stimulus, more taking care of the people – who have been displaced by the shutdown. We need to get the economy back open again, uh, get our way of life back. Uh, a lot of these, I, I, I suspect a lot of these governors are slow walking this on purpose, hoping to inflict economic damage on President Trump. Uh, but we're now being held hostage. The American people are being held hostage because of their, their gripe with President Trump. So they're willing to sacrifice us in order to make their political case, which is really, really appalling. So uh, there's talk about, uh, for example, extending COBRA payments, right? Keep people on the private health insurance. That'd be good because that'll give people peace of mind as well. The last thing somebody wants to do right now is go looking for a new doctor and uh, they're, they're afraid. So 
uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and uh, I'm, I'm confident we will get through this, and we will have a V-shaped recovery. We've seen the uh, incipient signs, the green shoots of that. We've seen the early signs of that, and there's no reason we shouldn't. Be. The fundamentals of the economy are strong, and actually, we have now learned that we need to bring manufacturing and the production of goods back to this country. We need to be much more self-reliant than we have been, and uh, in the middle term, it's going to be a good thing. All right. We'll end on that optimistic note. He is Curtis Curtis Ellis, founder of American Jobs Alliance, served as a senior policy advisor on Trump 2016 and the presidential transition team and special advisor to U.S. Secretary of Labor in the Trump administration. Curtis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, and on this... uh edition of sports and politics uh, Colin Kaepernick pronouncements over the weekend uh, black people have been dehumanized brutalized criminalized plus terrorized by America for centuries and are expected to join your commemoration of independence quote unquote while you enslaved our ancestors we reject your celebration of white supremacy and look forward to liberation for all that's what he tweeted uh, Brett Favre care to comment any comment from Brett Favre Funny because um, a different Colin Kaepernick, whoa, just nine years ago, the tender age of, I don't know, 20 something. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. I hope everyone has a blessed day. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, nothing like uh, the political ra- uh, racialization to turn a guy around. I assume he was wearing his uh, Castro t shirt while he tweeted that. In another photo with uh, Sean King. This is uh, the white dude who's the phone co-founder of Real Justice Pack, which is another funnel for Black Lives Matter. And by the way, a great tweet. Uh, Cop with attitude is the handle. It's a picture of Sean King with uh, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick sporting the Malcolm X shirt on this day. And uh, just the reference to Sean King, again, a white guy, calling him Talcum X. <laughs> I love it. If you think that's funny. The sports and politics will move from uh, football or formerly of the NFL, Colin Kaepernick, to uh, the NBA. And uh, we reported this last week, the opportunity that NBA players will have to replace the names on the back of their jerseys with social justice messages. And uh, Rachel Nichols reporting for CNN on what uh, the league and the teams and the players have agreed on as acceptable replacements for the names on the back of their jerseys. Mark Spears reporting that the NBA and the Players Association have agreed on the social justice messages that can be used on the backs of jerseys. They will be able to wear the pre-approved messages in place of their last names the first four days of the restart and will be able to submit two different choices for approval so they each get two. After those four days, players can continue to wear messages, but these will sit above their last name. Here is a list of some of the approved messaging that was agreed on between the league and the union. Black Lives Matter, Say Their Name. 
names, vote, I can't breathe, how many more, speak up, anti-racist, so many more there. All right, uh, and the others, I'll just uh, round out the list. Si se puede, see us, hear us, respect us, listen to us. I, who is, is uh, you know, which group of people have the uh, most or highest quotient maybe of pandering? Is it uh, these uh, virtue signaling athletes or the virtue signaling politicians? I mean, I honestly can't listen to, say, a Paul Pierce talking about this on ESPN and distinguish from some run of the mill congressperson st- talking about the same topic. It's just indistinguishable. Everybody repeating the same can't. And of course, punishing those who won't. This is Dan Pop. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump's uh, speech at Mount Rushmore over the weekend in celebration of America's birthday. Uh, that would be July 4, 1776, not 1619, for those of you scoring at home. Uh, he uh, really began to frame a choice that Americans have come November 3rd. Make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. In so doing, they would destroy the very civilization that rescued billions from poverty, disease, violence, and hunger, and that lifted humanity to new heights of achievement, discovery, and progress. They are determined to tear down every statue, symbol, and memory of our national heritage. That is why I am deploying federal law enforcement to protect our monuments, arrest the rioters, and prosecute offenders to the fullest extent of the law. The uh, criticism up until that speech of President Trump over the last month had been in part Americans feeling neglected and undefended by the president, even those who are erstwhile supporters. And that speech refocused the choice. You may not like me, but it's me and the rule of law, or it is lawlessness and violence and the leftist mob and the purge coming for you in one form or fashion at your workplace, at your kid's school, or on the streets. The left is giving a wink and a nod to the mob at present. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott Rasmussen. He's a public opinion pollster, editor-at-large for Ballotpedia, and co-founder of ESPN. I don't know if that's a credential anymore. Scott Rasmussen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, it's great to be with you. What about uh, where you have the race right now, and not just the head-to-head competition, and not just even in the battleground states, but sort of the underlying attitudes of voters, what they want and what they don't want, what they like about Trump, what they don't want, what they uh, have hope for in Biden and what they are concerned about? Well, let's start with, uh, you know, I obviously I think the polling, is, as you just read from my column, was good in 2016, but the analysis was horrible. People simply saw what they wanted to see in the data. 
Uh, Hillary Clinton saw enough, but she didn't even know Wisconsin was on the map. Uh, you know, so there was uh, there was a great failure of analysis. And when you look at polls right now, my polling shows that among registered voters, uh, Donald Trump is down by about 10 points to Joe Biden. It's a couple of points closer if you look at likely voters. Uh, but I have absolutely no hesitation to say that if the election were held today, in addition to being shocked, the president would lose and control of the Republican Senate would be at risk. The, the part that people have to understand when they hear that is the election is 17 weeks away. It's not being held today. Right. These numbers may change. What is lacking right now is a message from the president and from the Republican side uh, to counter what people see. Look, the Democrats have identified themselves as the party of government, and they have delivered a consistent message about turning more power over to government, having the government set more rules. You may not like the message, but it is very consistent. And a great example has to do with the economy. Right now, a lot of Republicans are saying no new spending. Well, if we match that up against Nancy Pelosi's plan, voters prefer Pelosi's plan to no new spending by a two-to-one margin. Why? Because at least she's offering something. People think we're in the midst of a pandemic. They're not hearing an alternative plan. So there's, there is something to that. One proposal that, that I've done some polling on, the Workplace Recovery Alliance, is, has this idea that if a government ordered a business to shut down, the government should cover their losses. Well, that's pretty popular, far more popular than Pelosi's plan, but there needs to be a message. This is interesting, too. This is from Pew Research Center. Now, this is uh, just registered voters, but it, it's still it's a dynamic that's interesting. The uh, percentage of voters who think that uh, Trump is um, a uh, good or great president is 10 points higher than the percentage of voters who say Biden would be a good or great president. But the uh, percentage of people who say he's a terrible president is also 10 points higher than the, the percentage of people who think Joe Biden would be a terrible president. They you know, they think he'd be sort of mediocre or a little bit less. It seems to me that speaks to the intensity gap that Biden has and the unfavorable problem that Trump has. You know, Trump supporters are intensely supportive of him and there's more lukewarm support for Joe Biden. That's a problem for him. But there's intense dislike for President Trump and the dislike of Joe Biden is a little bit more lukewarm. So that's a problem for Trump. And so then how do you deal with, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, to trying to bring back some people who are intense your way or particularly when you need to, when the numbers are as big as they are for Trump? And how do you move uh, lukewarm people into warming up? Well, I think the reality is uh, the president four years ago got 46 percent of the vote. Only 36% of the vote actually wanted him as president. The other 10% said that he was unqualified to be president, but he was the lesser of two evils. Uh, right now, that group in the population, uh, we identify they disapprove of this president, but they think things would have been worse if Hillary Clinton had won. Mm -hmm. uh, these are voters that need to be reached out to. These are voters that uh, the president's strongest supporters need to be building bridges to rather than saying, if you're not with us, you're against us. Uh, and, you know, that's going to come on a positive message. Some of it will come on the economy. Uh, some will come on cultural issues. And again, we can't overlook the fact that um, this isn't a stage. Uh, real world events are going to impact this in a big way. Right now, when I ask voters, what are the top three issues? The top two are the same as they've been forever, the economy and health care. Third right now is civil rights. 
fourth is law and order. Um, if those last two flip, right now if people see the protests and the discussions and what's going on as um, a legitimate expression of, of concern over America's history of racial inequality, that's really good news for Joe Biden. He wants people thinking about that issue. If it flips to law and order and to a sense that uh, there is a violent mob that wants to overthrow the United States, well, that becomes much better for President Trump. Uh, and that's going to be determined by what happens in the protests and by the way this plays out and by the way the political leaders respond to it. Mm. Uh, how, uh, how concerning should it be to Joe Biden that 40 percent of all voters think that he has early onset dementia? I mean, you know, he had that presser the other day last week. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what about uh, he's asked the question about his mental acuity and he says, yeah. you know, they test for my mental acuity every day. That's not a great answer. <laughs> you know that that, <laughs> yeah, right, that, right. that expresses concern, and right. and so you know if if you if people don't feel like you pass the threshold test of like he's he or she is competent to do the job, physically able to do the job, then that seems to me an existential threat to his candidacy. Well, it is a potential threat. It, it does raise the importance of who he nominates to be his vice president, uh, because that will be an issue. Uh, but I would also remind you of 2016. There were lots of speculation and lots of concern about Hillary Clinton's health, um, but it didn't really reach a critical point until there was video of her, you know, fainting or collapsing after a rally and being helped into the Secret Service uh, van. You know, there was there was a moment that crystallized it. All the talking in the world about that isn't going to uh, change things. And and part of that, you know, a number that gets that big is because it's a partisan response. Uh, again, the base, the president's base is going to say, of course, Joe Biden is out of touch. Of course, he's clueless and it's because he has dementia. But you want to reach to other people who are saying, well, you know, he's a little older, but not that bad. Well, 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 well wait a second. Wait, but 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 uh, hold, hold on a second there. Joe Biden, um, uh, ta, 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 independence, 56 to 44 more likely versus less likely think Joe Biden has early onset dementia, 5644. So it's more than just a partisan issue, number one. Number two, it's different than Hillary Clinton because that was like physical ailments. This right. is mental ailments, and you see it every time Joe Biden speaks. It's different. Well, and again, if there is a crystallizing moment, that will happen. Uh, when you poll independence, really important part of the analysis that you're, you're bringing up, uh, you do have to remember that most people who are technically politically independent lean one way or the other. So yeah. that's why you get more muted responses. Um, and I, I'm not diminishing I'm not diminishing the concerns that are there about Joe Biden. But but right now they are not a defining issue of the campaign, primarily because uh, just as Donald Trump, uh, you know, was not Hillary Clinton. A lot of people, uh, about a quarter of his voters didn't think he was qualified to be president, but they voted for Donald Trump because he was less of a problem than Hillary Clinton. They thought she was unqualified as well. And right now, if there is a perception that both of these men are older and out of touch, um, then the advantage goes to the challenger. He is Scott Rasmussen, public opinion pollster, editor-at-large for Ballotpedia, co-founder of ESPN. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com.
Welcome back. Uh, following up on our conversation with pollster Scott Rasmussen, talking about uh, framing the choice in the race, let's take a look at uh, the reality on the ground in urban centers just this weekend, particularly those where uh, you have cultural Marxist mayors in a position where they're either formally calling for and participating in the defunding police or just using the police to scapegoat the problems they have with endemic violence in their cities, problems that have exacerbated over the last several weeks. In my own uh, home city of Chicago, or Murder City USA, I believe is what the Wall Street Journal editorial board termed it. You have uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, triple threat. Uh, That's how she defined herself when she ran for mayor, for those of you who don't understand the moniker. She's black, female, lesbian. She called herself the triple threat because she has those identitarian characteristics. So, you know, the cultural Marxist, cultural Marxist is Lori Lightfoot. She uh, tweeted over the weekend on Independence Day. As families gather to commemorate the founding of our nation, we must ask ourselves, is this who we are as a city or as a country? We cannot grow numb to this. She's talking about violence. We are making progress in slowing shootings, but we have to do better. Every single one of us. We're making progress in slowing shootings. Well, I don't know, but uh, I don't know what progress means anymore to progressives, but. I'll take her at her own definition. If progress means uh, your murders year over year are up 15 percent and your shootings are up year over year as well, then I guess that's what a progressive means by progress, because that's the situation in Chicago. By the way, how bad it is, is it in Chicago? Just to give you a comparison in New York. Also, obviously, you've got Marxists there in the Sandinistan de Blasio, Warner Wilhelm, if you prefer. The number of shooting victims has gone up 51 percent to 616 this year in New York City. New York City has three times the population, 616 shootings in New York City. Shootings. Chicago, 1,800 shootings so far this year. One third the population, three times the number of shootings. Just to give you an order of magnitude of what we're talking about here. And then on uh, this Independence Day weekend just passed, another 16 dead, 77 shot overall. In the last three weekends round numbers, 300 people shot and more than 50 people murdered, including 10 people, 10 kids under the age of 18. That's Chicago. That's how bad it is. And what do you get from Lori Lightfoot? Sentimental abstractions. Why do you get sentimental abstractions from politicians like Lightfoot? One of two reasons. They either have no idea what to do or they do not have the political will to do what is required. Uh, I suggest it's a little bit of both with Lightfoot and uh, the same in other cities. Atlanta, all of a sudden, uh, an autonomous zone near where Rayshard Brooks was shot and killed by police isn't such a good idea. This after an eight year old black girl was shot during a night of violence across Atlanta, where they had almost as many shootings this weekend as did Chicago, which, as you heard, is really saying something. Sicoria Turner was riding in a car with her mom and an adult friend when the car exited the interstate. If you know Atlanta, near the intersection of University Avenue and Pryor Road, police said the driver was attempting to enter the parking lot on the 1200 block of Pryor when they were confronted by a group of armed individuals illegally blocking the entrance. You know, these are your Chad, Chaz types. Someone in the group began riddling the car with bullets, hitting it multiple times, including the shot that killed eight-year-old Sequoia Turner. Now, all of a sudden, Mayor Bottoms of Atlanta wants to do something about this. And that remarkable and remarkable. She's on the short list uh, for consideration as uh, Joe Biden's running mate. I don't know if she still is, but she was initially. 
Um, now, all of a sudden, somebody should do something about this, which is effectively what she said, as she's as if the mayor's an innocent bystander. I love the dissociative episodes that politicians uh, have when uh, their decisions lead to something catastrophic and they're just as upset about it as everybody else. So they want something done. <laughs> yeah, somebody should do something. Well, uh, you're the mayor. How about we start with you? Uh, Ray Kelly, former NYPD police commissioner, he of uh, broken windows fame, was on uh, John Katsimaitis's show on uh, over the weekend in New York. Now, here's what he had to say about what's happening in New York with the increase in violent crime. And really, it's a comment about uh, all of these urban centers. We uh, played the heartbreaking interview that Sean Hannity did last week of the gentleman in Seattle who lost his 19-year-old son. His 19-year-old son was murdered in this area that uh, the Seattle political authorities had ceded to the mob. You have something similar now happen to an 8-year-old girl in Atlanta. And then just the general violence that results when you send the signal to that small fraction of violent criminals, gangbangers in the case of Chicago mainly, and I assume that's significantly the case elsewhere, that uh, we're standing down, we're on our heels, we're going to use a light touch, you do what you want. Commissioner Kelly on the topic. Crime is raging out of control here in New York City. I don't see anything that's going to change the trajectory of that continuing to rise. There's uh, disorderly groups all over the city challenging police officers, and to various degrees it's happening throughout the country. We saw the Seattle takeover of the CHOP. I mean, that's been broken up, but I'm sure there's more to come. And police are generally backing off. Why are they backing off? They're backing off because their political leaders, the mayors, whoever's in charge of of, uh, these police departments, and I don't mean the police professionals, but the elected people are telling cops to back off. We had here Mayor de Blasio said, if you recall, have a light touch. But then you saw the mayhem that happened uh, after that with the looting and the cops being uh, pelted with all sorts of things, bricks and bottles and hitting over the heads with fire extinguishers, that sort of thing. So we're in a very difficult uh, situation here and uh, to a certain extent uh, throughout the rest of the country. And there's no easy answer. I don't see any light at the uh, the the tunnel. The police have been told to back off from doing anything that remotely looks like proactive policing. Here, the mayor eliminated the anti-crime units, which are probably the most effective tool that's existed in the department for decades to fight violent street crime. So that was a direct signal of surrender. That was a message to the department and to the criminal element, hey, you can not worry about uh, doing anything with violent crime. You just keep your hands off from that, that whole area. It's keyword surrender. Uh, I would say trade-off. I mean, yes, it's a, an appeasement, which is a, a baby step away from surrender. It's not de-escalation. It's appeasement, which is provocative. Uh, but it's a trade-off. I will trade off appeasing the mob for protecting my constituents. That's the trade-off that's being made by big city mayors all over the country. And there's just no two ways about it. And the people that are the biggest losers in that trade-off, of course, the people they run around preening, pretending to represent. Those law-abiding residents trapped in lower-income neighborhoods that are 
riddled with violent crime because they're run by drug pushing gangs. And again, I just don't understand uh, going back to our conversation in the first hour with Bob Woodson. This is not a complicated scam that's being run by these politicians. It just baffles me that more people don't figure it out and, and say, you know what? I care enough to organize, not a vigil, not midnight basketball, to organize, to hold politicians in charge accountable for what happens on their watch and turn them out of office. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And um, we turn our attention now to uh, updating the COVID-19 policies at the state level. Some of the new uh, scientific studies and everything from HCQ to, uh, well, to studies about masks uh, as a prophylactic. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember all the way back on March 31st of 2020. Yeah, all the way back then. Different era, different time, simpler time. WHO stands by recommendation to not wear masks if you're not sick or not caring for someone who is sick. That was a headline at CNN.com, March 31st. Today, uh, including by Republican governors, that uh, crossed partisan boundaries. Uh, so does the uh, the mask uh, impositions, despite and we've had these arguments on this show. You've heard me argue with uh, people who are epidemiologists, uh, professionals that uh, uh, won't confront some of the studies that suggest there's not much science behind masks as prevention. And there's also uh, individuals. Uh, including this weekend, who suggests that, um, look, uh, you're not going to be able to stop this virus before it effectively uh, travels around the world. It's uh, spreading in the summer months. And, uh, well, let me quote him here. Professor Peter Collignon, an infectious disease doctor and microbiologist at the Australian National University, said only a tiny fraction of the world's total population has been infected by COVID-19. The reality is that it's going to keep on spreading until we have most of the world infected, which is not a good idea, or we get a safe, infective and effective vaccine. Uh, The flip side is a couple of studies that uh, Ronald Bailey wrote about at Reason.com that suggest maybe we're closer to herd immunity than um, uh, than has been previously reported studies out of both Germany and Sweden. Well, to help us make sense of this all, uh, a gentleman that's been pretty even handed about following the science here and not making political statements based on you know, personal worldview is Chris von Schefelve, who is an epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses. He's currently the vice president of special projects at Star Schema. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to have you back. Why don't we start with, because um, you, uh, you tweeted about this too, um, break down this uh, new study at uh, – from the Henry Ford Health System that uh, found 13% of hospitalized COVID-19 patients treated with uh, HCQ alone died versus the 26% who were not treated with it. Um, and then uh, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this additional study that uh, uh, 
people. So, so the the I should say the takeaway is that patients who were uh, treated with hydroxychloroquine fifty percent less likely to die. That was the top line, and, and you broke that down a little bit. Yes. So it, it's really difficult to try to make sense of the hydroxychloroquine evidence right now, and that is actually not necessarily unusual. It appears that the main problem with all the evidence that we have on hydroxychloroquine is that it treats all patients and all administrations of this drug and all cases as this one bunch. Now, an example I often use is there are drugs that are extremely effective for one particular kind of breast cancer. It's a drug called Herceptin. Uh, fantastic drug for one particular kind, but if you look at it, if you administer it to everybody with breast cancer, you would not get a clinically useful result. It would look like useless. Now, what it looks like is that we're missing something. We're very much missing something, that something is who are the patients or what are the characteristics that describe the patient's to whom administering hydroxychloroquine might be beneficial. So sort of the, 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 ti- the timing of its usage and the particular patient profile, yes. so it may be yes. useful in, in limited circumstances, but not, 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 for treating the, uh, not as a therapeutic for the uh, virus more generally. It might, not, it might not work for everybody, but uh, we need more evidence to understand why when it works or when it appears to work, such as in the fourth study, it does appear to have an effect. And unfortunately, the problem is that the debate about hydroxychloroquine has gotten so heated that it's really difficult to get straight-faced evidence on is this a drug that works or is this one that does not. When we come back with uh, Chris von Schaffelve, I want to uh, turn our attention to the other issue I mentioned, which is masks and also Uh, Talk a little bit about the case surge, too. But in context, the uh, spike in cases uh, and yet uh, the decline in the daily death numbers. More with uh, epidemiologist and uh, VP of Special Projects at Star Star Schema, Chris von Schaffelve, right after seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we are speaking with chris von chaffelve you can follow him at chris v and I'll spell it, C-S-E-F-A-L-V-A-Y. He's an epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses, and he's currently a VP of Special Projects at Star Schema. Chris, you had a piece at City Journal about the quote-unquote mask wars, and you suggest, much like uh, our conversation before the break about hydroxychloroquine, the debate has become so politicized, and there's, I guess, some competing studies that suggest that mask wearing can produce a demonstrable benefit in terms of prevention of spread, although I'm not familiar with them, and I'm familiar with a couple dozen more that suggest there is no statistically significant evidence. So help us discern what is and is not the truth based on scientific research on masks. You know, on one hand, we do know that in certain countries where mask wearing is pretty much part of social protocol, this is mainly in the Far East, there has been 
a rather milder case of this pandemic. Now, we at the same time know that there are a lot of things getting different between between Lombardy, uh, the U.S., and Wuhan province, China, and mask wearing is probably not the first that comes to everybody's mind. At the same time, while we do know that masks might have some effectiveness, it stands to reason that they would be helpful. We do not really know as well as we wish we did from perspective, randomized, solid trials, whether that mask wearing is actually as effective as we think it is. And the big danger, I think, I wear my mask, so I'm happy to hedge my bets. But the concern is that it, it, it can easily serve as a distraction for many things. It can distract us from the fact that we still need more than individual action. We need public health leadership. It can distract us from the fact that we need other things. We need people to wash their hands. We need people to stay away from touching their faces. We need people to keep socially distancing where it's appropriate. Masks alone are not going to solve this by elevating it so much. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, particularly because, uh, you know, when CNN reports the WHO pronouncement at the end of March that there's no need to wear masks unless you're sick yourself or treating someone who's sick, and then there's a reversal less than 60 days later, and there's been no scientific breakthrough in the interim period, then, then what is that? I think it's largely a strategic rethinking of how this will probably go down. We know about uh, the coronavirus. We know a lot more about COVID-19 than we used to know back then. There was a lot of concern that if everybody started wearing and hoarding masks, it will be like people hoarding toilet paper, and uh, eventually there won't be enough for health institutions where there really is a high risk, where people doing invasive procedures involve a lot of sputum and saliva flying around. That was part of the story. At least another part of the story was that there has been a rethinking since we have essentially reached a point after which social distancing and forced social distancing and quarantines and lockdowns are no longer sustainable, or at least no longer yield much by way of positive results. We need to figure out a way for people to be out there together but safe. And masks are pretty much our best hope, or at least part of a good strategy for that. How do you uh, receive the uh, increase in cases uh, in America uh, driven by increase in cases in um, a couple dozen states that began reopening from early May to early June. But at the same time, the daily death count is continuing to decline because the average age of those getting infected is much lower. Hospitalizations and deaths are lower. And so the reinstitution of some of the lockdown policies and the general frenzy that is being induced by the coverage of this. I'm cautiously optimistic. I shared that with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, who have said pretty much the same. Now, it is not unusual for the case fatality ratio, so the number of people who end up dying of an infection, to go down over time because a virus goes for the most susceptible individuals first. So once it has, so to speak, burned through, the most susceptible individuals in society. And 
a lot of those deaths, I would have to add, were preventable deaths, especially yes. the nursing, nursing home deaths. Nursing home catastrophe of New Jersey and New York is something that will have that there will have to be accountability and straight talk about what happened there. But that's a, that's a sidebar. The main drift of the argument here is that eventually, once the most vulnerable have either had coronavirus or were protected from it or survived it uh, with antibodies and hence immunity, the people who are now getting sick, some of them are still getting very, very unwell, and there are still people succumbing to it. But the worst in terms of mortality, there's a good chance that that's over. I don't want to be too optimistic. I want to be just as cautiously optimistic as uh, Dr. Fauci has often said he was. I think Brett Amalterar has uh, said that he is still not sleeping too well at night, neither do I. So we're not over the hump yet. But even with this rise in cases, the important thing is that this is not an unexpected phenomenon. The important thing is that this is not something that happened and caught us by surprise. This is something that we knew when there was talk about flattening the curve. It was very clear that however you flatten a curve, the area under the curve tends to stay, stay roughly the same. Right. So it's just instead of having it all at once and overwhelming healthcare capacity, which uh, to America's huge credit, people managed to pull together and do everything they could and avoid overwhelming the U.S. healthcare capacity. Right. It's it's not an expected event. It's just being reported as yeah, unexpected. Right. Yeah, that's it, that, it, that's the disconnect. A natural consequence. This was nobody is shocked and surprised by what's going on. Maybe by the extent, maybe it's uh, a little faster than most of us would like it to, but uh, this was this, this was hardly unexpected. He is Chris von Schaffelve. He's an epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses, currently VP of Special Projects at Star Schema, and I will uh, tweet out uh, his piece that I referenced at uh, City Journal. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your insights. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world. you'll know this is the dan Proft show welcome back how about some uh, biting parody to end the show following up on our conversation with uh, epidemiologist chris von chafelve very good conversation as always is with him you'll remember back in april the end of april uh, this uh, YouTube personality called the Adley, the Adley Show, I should say, uh, the Adley Show, uh, gave us a summary of the instructions we were getting from our political betters at the federal, but mostly state levels. Yeah, I really don't understand why everybody isn't following the same rules right now. They're very clear. So let's take a minute. And let's go over them again. First, you must not leave the house for any reason, unless, of course, you have a reason, and then you may leave the house. All stores are closed except those that are open. And all stores must close unless, of course, they need to stay open. This virus is deadly, but don't be afraid of it. 
It can only kill people who are vulnerable and also those who are not vulnerable. We should stay locked down until the virus stops infecting people. And it will only stop infecting people if enough of us get infected that we build immunity. So it is very important that we get infected and also do not get infected. You should not go to the doctor's office or the hospital unless you have to go there. Unless, of course, you are too sick to go there. This virus has no effect on children except for those children in which it affects. The virus remains active on different surfaces for two hours or four hours or six hours, but in most cases it's days and not hours and it needs a damp environment or a cold environment that is warm and dry in the air unless the air is plastic. Schools are closed, so you need to homeschool your children unless you can send them to school because you are not home. If you are at home, you can school your children using various portals and online classrooms unless you have poor internet, more than one child, only one computer, or you are working from home. Yeah, you get the picture. Pretty good stuff. And that was before we found out uh, that she could have added on the surfaces. Oh, it doesn't uh, transmit uh, via surfaces. Uh, well, there's um, uh, an update, not from the Adley Show, but uh, a lot of competition online from uh, wannabe influencers. This is a TikTok video from uh, a young woman who calls herself Jewel Cat on uh, the uh, continued progression of government intrusion all, of course, in service of saving lives. She goes a little bit different route. She does uh, sort of a modern-day Martin Niemöller. It's just a mask. It's just two weeks. It's just so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. It's just non-essential businesses. It's just until the cases go down more. It's just until we get a vaccine. It's just a few side effects. It's just a bracelet. It's just to let others know you're safe to be around. It's just an app. It's just to let others know who you've been in contact with. It's just a few more months. It's just a video. It's just an email account. It's just a credit card company. You can use cash. It's just a few places that won't take cash. It's just a little chip. It's just for medical information and paying for things. It's just for travel. It's just so you can get your driver's license. It's just so you can vote. It's just a few more years. It's just a statue. It's just a building. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a flag. It's just a piece of cloth. It's just a blood test. It's just a scan. It's just a chip. Just a dog. It's just a clump of cells. It's just the bad people. It's just the undesirables. It's just the Jews. It's just the Christians. Just the people don't think like us. It's just giving away your freedom a little bit at a time. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.